Today is November 20th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Joe Cheer, who is Associate Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology, Psychiatry, and the Program in Neuroscience at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Um, hi, Joe. Hi. He specializes in physiological function of the endogenous cannabinoid system and its influence on disorders of motivation like addiction by using real-time simultaneous measures of neuronal spiking activity and neurotransmitter release during behavior. So um, around the room, we've got Denard Simmons. Hi, Denard. Hello. He's a graduate student in the Palladini Lab. We've got Matt Winnott. Hello. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me. I'm your host, Sama Karashi. So, Joe, let's start at the beginning. Um, a, a lot of your work is built around understanding endocannabinoid modulation of dopamine responses during motivated behaviors, but dopamine neurons don't themselves have cannabinoid receptors, right? So um, how do midbrain dopamine neurons receive the cannabinoid signal? And um, since we haven't really talked about this stuff much in this podcast series yet, please take us through some of the basics as, and, as well as the specifics of the dopamine circuit mechanism. So. Yeah, so as a dopamine researcher and somebody who's interested in endocannabinoids, I picked the worst possible place to study because the only brain pathway that does not express, or one of the only brain pathways that doesn't express cannabinoid receptors is the dopaminergic projection from the VTA to the accumbens. So all of the things that we've discovered whereby cannabinoids exert any effects on dopamine release uh, must be indirect. Now, the ventral tegmental area, for example has cannabinoid receptors in it. There's moderate densities of cannabinoid receptors, and those cannabinoid receptors are present both on uh, excitatory and inhibitory afferents to the dopamine cells. The dopamine neurons themselves, besides making dopamine as a neurotransmitter, they can also release endocannabinoids under certain conditions. So um, the difference between, and again, this is speculative work based upon some empirical findings that were obtained from the laboratory of Miriam Mellis and Marco Pistis at the University of Cairo. It suggests that the main function of endocannabinoids is to um, uh, disinhibit dopamine neurons, basically by blocking GABA release. And when the dopamine neurons are undergoing uh, situations that are maladaptive, such as depolarization block, for example, that's when the glutamate pathway kicks in and it basically uh, decreases the probability of excitation by blocking glutamate release. So, but you, you're right, Salman, that it is all indirect. Now, in the cell uh, terminals, so for example, in my particular case, we're interested in the striatum, very little has been done with respect to how dopamine release generates uh, responses that are CB1 receptor mediated in the postsynaptic cell. Uh, Pablo Castillo has done some of that work in the prefrontal cortex, but very little has been done with respect to um, uh, measurements of dopamine and, and postsynaptic activity. Obviously, there are canonical um, synaptic plasticity mechanisms that were first discovered by David Lovinger in the dorsolateral striatum, and he showed, for example, that their long-term depression of excitatory afferents to medium spiny neurons uh, clearly depended on dopamine via D2 receptors and also on endogenous cannabinoids. But to really uh, assess how these things are giving rise to patterns that are behaviorally relevant and how they respond 
to dopamine, that type of systematic study hasn't been performed yet. So you've demonstrated that disrupting cannabinoid signaling with antagonists um, decreases dopamine release uh, evoked not only by drugs of abuse, but also by um, conditioned predictors of positive reinforcers, um, not, not the reinforcer itself, which is, which is kind of important. Um, can you explain kind of the finer points of what that means as far as um, cannabinoid signaling being kind of tethered to Q salience right. um, and, and maybe say something about whether this generalizes um, for cues that signal avoidance behaviors um, as well as more repetitive type stuff? Right. So, and the one thing that I that people tend to forget about this system is that the cannabinoid receptor antagonist Remonabant SR fourteen seventeen sixteen A was in the clinic in uh, Europe and in Canada as a smoking cessation agent, and um, its ability to work as a smoking cessation agent stemmed from the fact that people were less likely to pick up a cigarette upon presentation of a situational reminder. So basically, it would prevent cue-induced relapse. And so that's the whole uh, hypothesis about why these molecules are really so tuned to these exteroceptive triggers that are conducive to their maladaptive behaviors or adaptive behaviors. It's basically controlling um, afferent input to the dopamine neurons that we believe are the ones that actually uh, enact or, or facilitate action upon you know those 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 uh the presentation of those cues now you said generalize and that's that's the key operative term it turns out that this compound was pulled from the clinic because this is a canonical system so it turned out that in the patient populations that received this drug while they were uh prevented from uh relapsing to smoking and actually, also, it was also involved in, in obesity. Um, these patients uh, showed moderately significant levels of suicidal ideation. So basically, they showed that while they were on the drug, the le- their motivational levels were very low, borderline suicidal ideation. And actually, there was one or two suicides in this Having said that, the patients were not screened for signs of depression for these particular um, uh, sort of uh, drug trials. This, these trials were repeated while having screened the patient population for depressive ideation, for example, or propensity to depression, and none of these uh, secondary side effects were seen. Uh, but, you know, it tells you that this system is, 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 is well-conserved. It evolved to allow organisms to engage in the pursuit of things that are adaptive, either obtaining, as you said, a primary reinforcer or avoiding something that's bad for you, basically a negative reinforcer. Can you explain the terms interoceptive and exteroceptive? Because I hadn't come across those before. Right. So exteroceptive, for example, an alcoholic that's walking down the street and he sees his corner bar, that is an exteroceptive trigger, right? It's external to the environment. Now, we all guide ourselves with interoceptive cues, the most common of which is timing. So, for example, every time you wake up in the morning, you know that you need to do something. That's an interoceptive timing mechanism, whatever it is that you do. Whenever after lunch, there's a sequence of things that you do. Those are interoceptive timing mechanisms. So there's interoceptive as well as exteroceptive. And recent work from 
our lab and from Dr. Wanatz as well has shown that, that dopamine is clearly involved in timing patients with Parkinson's and Huntington's can't keep time in an interceptive fashion, but also cannabinoid uh, manipulations can change timing or interceptive cues as well. Do you see those as sort of more philosophically? Do you see that extraceptive cues sort of being serial or series with um, interceptive cues, where the external cues are actually just triggering sort of an internal state? Do you think that that, um, again, totally philosophical in that sense, but would you see it as such? Because when you see those sort of, you know, you imagine a cue in the environment for an alcoholic, you see your bar, the bar that you always go to, that's going to trigger, trigger some sort of internal representation. And then that's going to drive the behavior. Or do you see them as sort of like maybe two different sort of like segregated inputs or pathways that are coming into the dopamine neurons that maybe, um, yeah. That's a really good question. And I think, I mean, at least in, in, in our day-to-day life, they're completely intertwined. So the preclinical manipulations to actually tease those two apart are only now becoming available, for example, with the beat frequency model by Warren Mack. Things like that that really can dissociate interoceptive from exteroceptive triggers will start to give us some insight into the anatomical frameworks that may underlie the two types and how they can converge to produce dopaminergic output. But, you know, as far as, as we're concerned on a day-to-day basis, I think... It, it, it's we're using them back and forth in an intertwined fashion, so it'd be kind of hard to to really point point. Well, I mean, yeah, as you said, you know, it's it's an exteroceptive trigger, but I mean, who knows if if you know, for example, this generates a signal in the gut that's interceptive, that's you know, generating a cycle that self perpetuates into seeking the alcohol as well. We don't know that. Do uh, cannabinoids affect exteroceptive versus interoceptive mechanisms differently? So, for example, the patients that have smoked marijuana, uh, it's as far as timing goes, and I'm sticking with timing because that's the best, the, the, the interceptive cue that we can relate to the better. Um, they actually uh, report a lengthening of time, right? Time gets distorted in a way that time seems to slow when, in fact, your internal timing mechanism is faster. So, they do that, and... Uh, when we looked at it in our preclinical model, um, we find that the cannabinoid agonists increase dopamine, and by increasing dopamine, they accelerate time estimation. So that's the effect that they have on the interoceptive mechanism, whereas on the exteroceptive triggers is very different because the temporal scale of dopamine that endocannabinoids modulate is very, very different. So, for example, like a, 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 a discrete trigger normally is very fast, whereas, you know, a, 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 ter- a time interval is long by definition. Well, well, it can be a short time interval, but basically the time in between events is much longer than a single discrete cue. And so dopamine can signal within those two temporal frames, no problem. And within those two temporal frames, an endocannabinoid or an exogenous cannabinoid is going to potentiate dopamine at a cue. Whereas by le- by generating an increase in dopamine during the time interval is actually going to make the animals interpret that interval as being shorter. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's the effects are different in terms of you know what the outcome is for for each one of those representations. Well, for example, if you had a uh, like a rat that would um, have to uh, press a lever 
upon Q presentation, right, which would be, I guess, exteroceptor, right? The Q presentation is exteroceptor. Mm-hmm. And then actually receive a food pellet, mm-hmm. a sugar pellet or something like that. That would be enteroceptive, right? <laughs> when, when they finally, the, the unconditioned reward, um, would be enteroceptive or, I, I think, or a mixture of the two at least. I think no, because the thing that remember, when we talk about cues, we thought we talk about stimuli that guide our behavior. Yeah. Right. So what guided the behavior of that particular animal that you're talking about, all the information is presented when the animal sees the conditioned stimulus. Whereas sometimes, you know, animals that are responding in a peak procedure with the sole thing that they're relying upon is their ability to count time. That is a, a truly interoceptive mechanism. Right. Yeah. That's guiding their behavior. But hunger is also one. So if I see the golden arches, that's an external cue that then right. triggers hunger, and which then triggers my behavior toward. My that's body. that would call. I would say that's an exteroceptive trigger. It's still an exteroceptive. Right. Trigger. Yeah, because everything initiates with the golden arches. <laughs> and they're sponsored by McDonald's. <laughs> that's a heavy, heavy statement. Yeah. That's the title of this podcast. <laughs> Having said that, you know, you can have, for example, you know the. The level of hunger in animals follows a Zeitgeber pattern. So Zeitgeber is, you know, the circadian pattern. And those are interoceptive patterns. Right? So that's very different. I mean, you even if you're in a room with no light, right, and uh, no no possible triggers that tell you what time of day it is, you're going to know when you're supposed to get hungry. And you're not going to be hungry even if you haven't eaten. So, for example, if you're in a room... 24 hours, you're going to start to get hungry at around, you know, the time you normally have breakfast, even if you don't have anything, then you're not going to be hungry, even if you haven't eaten, and you're going to get hungry again at lunch. These are sort of the interoceptive mechanisms that I'm talking about. So I had a question about the, uh, I mean, you brought up the effect in the human patients who are given rabonabant, mm-hmm. and they had a lack of motivation, and sort of bridging that to the results you find where, you know, you you give them monoband, you have a reduction of, you know, dopamine release to cues, whether in an impetitive or in a uh, aversive manner. Do you think it's sort of, are they not aware that the cue is presented or is it just the cue does not drive, you know, is there, I guess in the human condition, you could sort of ask, you know, you've got the cigarette there. Were you just not aware that the cigarette was there or are you not motivated? And I guess you can't really tease it apart in the animal model, but is there any sort of information you could sort of guide about the dopamine system and what you see that could translate to what was sort of observed in the the clinical studies or preclinical? Absolutely. So the patients, the first patient populations that were done in the uh, smoking cessation study, that's exactly what they reported. When they were on on the pill, they reported that they didn't feel the urge to have a cigarette at the times that they would normally have them, basically, you know, after coffee, for example, after a meal, that they would not have the urge, whatever that may mean. Is it that, you know, the cue that led them to smoke lost its significance, or is it that they really did not feel like engaging? It's kind of hard, but that was textually what they said. So So would you expect that they wouldn't be able to learn a new cue-triggered response? Well, that was the expectation with the drug that, you know, even if it worked for, for certain cues, that it would protect them for other, you know, sort of relapsing events because it would actually lessen the incidence, the dopaminergic incidence of those situational reminders so that they, they wouldn't act upon them. Situation where 
when a light came on, they were going to get shocked. They wouldn't be able to learn to escape the shock. That's also true. I guess that doesn't happen that much. Uh, no, actually, it does happen, and that's why it you know it's a good drug is a dirty drug by definition, right? So clearly, this patient population that you're mentioning probably would be a patient a, a patient population that's at risk for high anxiety. And clearly, that patient population would not be good for this. For that patient population, an agonist would be better, right? Because of uh, the known, uh, also clinical, epidemiological, and preclinical findings that if you raise tissue levels of endogenous cannabis or if you have activation of CB1 receptors exogenously by marijuana, you're protected, for example, from things like PTSD that involve a high anxiety component. I was so, just thinking about things uh, like... Things we have to know, right? If you were learning to drive, for right. example, you'd have to learn a whole lot of associations between cue and response. Right. And you wouldn't want to uh, disable that, all it, of that stuff when you're learning to drive, or if you're learning to be a fighter pilot or something like that. But I guess a lot of adults whose biggest problem is whether they have a cigarette or not are not learning a lot of really critical approach and avoidance tasks every day in their lives. Well, I think that the thing that really is important is what you said. I mean, most people, and we're talking about addictions now specifically, at the beginning, when they first recreationally use the drug, is the primary reinforcing properties of the drug that drive them to, to, to abuse it, right? So that's when you see the positive reinforcing mechanism. As you, as you said, yes, these compounds are going to have an effect. But the thing that and so this compound can also have an effect because most people that are actually looking to stop or that are actually maintaining drug use is via negative reinforcement mechanisms. For example, somebody who's a heroin addict, they're not um, using heroin because heroin feels good. It's because they want to avoid at all costs the very severe withdrawal that comes with uh, you know, becoming abstinent from it. So that's a truly negative reinforcement mechanism where they just doing these things just to prevent something happening from, from something bad from happening. Um, I guess uh, one of the things I think is kind of surprising is, you know, it seems that a lot of the effects of Ramonaban, you know, in the human population, you know, could be mediated through its effect, you know, on the, the mesolympic dopamine system. But you noted that, that actually the expression levels is, you know, moderate, you know, in the VTA. And I guess, could you comment on that is, you know, you, you mentioned it's one of the highest, you know, uh, expressing GPCRs in the brain. So what else is it doing? Or what are the other sort of, you know, brain regions where endocannabinoids are working in their sort of behavioral function? Or just because this is, you know, such a critical motivation, this sort of usurps every other function elsewhere in sort of more higher cortical you know, brain regions. What's the expression in compacta as well? Very low. But for example, reticulata is the highest in the entire brain. So, and again, that's a very good question. People have tried to determine why there's such high receptor reserve in some areas and not others. And it's, it's you, the way you prefaced it, I think it's, it, it, it hits the nail on the head. It's, if it's, if it's a system that has great importance for a particular set of behaviors, for example, in our case, you know, the, the uh, ascending uh, sort of mesolimbic projection, you know, you don't really need to have that much because that system already is taking uh, the brunt of the of the 
sort of the of the neurobiological underpinnings for it. So a small amount of modulation will produce, by definition, a huge change. But I mean, and I'm, that's maybe just me speculating, but I think that's the reason why I think, you know, just interfering in these regions that have moderate expression yields such a large effect. Whereas in other regions, but for example, hippocampus is one of the areas, or dente gyrus, or some of the areas that have the largest expression of CB1 receptors there as well. And clearly, you know, marijuana intoxication produces very profound effects on, on memory. So, you know, that may not hold water for that particular type of, uh, of system. I just, you know, we, that's just the way Mother Nature wanted it to be, I guess. So I think uh, what you just said gets me back this sort of issue of the, the, in, the natural physiological necessity of these things and then these interventions like the ones that that block the cannabinoid receptors so the uh, I guess if I wanted to learn uh, a task that required a lot of new Q response relationships like uh, playing a really good video game or something like that then I would be a lot better off if I could crank up my endocannabinoid system because that's going to make my dopamine cells really responsive to the cues and that's what I need to shape my behavior. Just as long as the dopamine system is engaged. Yes. Because remember, in a video game, for example, you know, you learn because it's reinforcing what, once you've learned how to do it, but after that, you know, a lot of it is habit formation and yeah, a lot I'm of people... I'm talking about learning. I'm saying I okay. want to learn something. I right. want to learn to be a fighter yeah. pilot. Yeah. So I should want to crank up my endocannabinoid system. So, if I give an exogenous cannabinoid while I'm trying to learn to be a fighter pilot, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that probably isn't. It's all about the dose. It's all about the dose. You can have a a dose that's impairing, and you can have a dose that's that's not impairing, that actually facilitates learning. Uh Uh-huh. So what were the results from the CV1 knockout animals? Well, that's a pretty interesting thing. CV1 knockout animals have problems with uh, Morris water maze, for example. They don't learn as well. Which is paradoxical because, you know, there's no target for the, for the, you know, for exogenous agonists. But, uh, but you know, having said that, this compound, Rimonabot, CB1 receptor antagonists, when they were first doing the clinical studies, the preclinical studies, in Morris water maze, low doses of this compound actually made memory better. High doses made it worse. Low doses of an agonist, very low doses of an agonist, made it better. High doses made it worse. So it's all, you know, it's, it's all about the dose. It's the all inverted U-shaped curves. Yeah, I've heard those words before, but they don't mean anything to me. I, th- I can picture inverted U-shaped curve, but I can't fi- picture the physiological mechanism. That I don't know. It. That's just the pharmacology of it. Obviously, you ha- you'd have to do the physiological experiment to know it. So, but what I what I think I know is that if you block cannabinoids, then cues don't cues that are associated with reward don't acquire. The dopamine response to the room. Right. That's, yeah, that's the, and, that's uh, not just my word, but a, right. a lot of other people. And so that seems to be essential in the learning process. Right. So I don't see how the antagonist, low doses of antagonists, do low doses of antagonists enhance dopamine responses to the cure? Well, that's the thing. We've never actually done the dose response to show that. So we've only you always ever used doses that we know are going to impair. I see. I see. Right. 
We've never done a full-on dose response. So people and, who and do agonists, do they think do the same thing? They always crank up the agonist to the point where you're on the following phase of the curve. I think so because you always want to have an effect. So to and do you always the want the effect dose, to be negative. Too. I mean, to be bad. We want to be able to no, because I showed you the effect no, when I mean, we raise tissue levels, uh, right in the talk. No, but I'm talking about exogenous. Well, that was exogenous. Idea. It would be a really bad remember, idea for me to try to publish a paper that shows that. THC makes you better at being a driver, for example. <laughs> I think I would. <coughs> it depends on the dose. I mean, something like that. It depends <laughs> on the dose. I mean, you know, ten years ago, you would have, you, or five years ago, you would have asked somebody. I mean, should I give marijuana to a six-year-old who's having seizures? You said no, reefer madness. Now, this is the preferred mode of treating epileptic form activity in children in Colorado. In Colorado. And in D.C. now, you can do it too. Yeah. So it all depends on, obviously, what you know about the compounds, what their pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics are, and obviously, the physio- as you said, the physiological mechanism comes after you've done all these preliminary things. Well, maybe you actually have components of that sitting in your data. Have you looked at, in sort of a trial-by-trial manner of, you know, you give a bolus of a drug, the dose is going to be highest then, and then it's presumably going to be wearing off uh, lipophilicity yeah, and all that aside. Um, but, uh, I mean, have you sort of looked at any of your, your data in that manner so that maybe in the end of the session you're starting to see a recovery or, you know, you, potentially you, you have that. Again, I, I don't know the pharmacodynamics. No, we haven't. Because, I mean, these things tend to linger for close to 24 hours in the body. Because they go to the tissue, to the uh, fat tissue first, and then they're re- they're slowly re- when given systemically, and that's what we give them into the brain to avoid that. And but in the brain, they're gone pretty quickly. So it's you know you go from being a mode of action that's relatively quickly intracerebral to something that lasts a long time. Well, that's a good thing though, because then you can just compare the two types of. Uh, yeah, we've done that, but we yeah. see the changes in the same direction. We don't see so if, you give it hypothesis if you give it intracerebral, no, but because you, you don't know how much you're getting into the brain when you give a systemic dose. You just don't know because it's being slowly released, so you don't know. If you, the reason why you do the intracerebral manipulation is to make sure that a given region supports the mechanisms that you're wanting to say, that you want to ascribe to that region. But I can't tell you how much cannabinoid agonist or antagonist, the VTA is seeing at a given point in time, I, I just don't know, unless you have a way to measure it. And oh, there's only one lab in the world that can do that. Is there a way to measure Yeah. You do it with GCMS or LCMS. And so there's only one person. What are those? What do those mean? Those what? Uh, what, do, what do those stand for? Oh, so a liquid chromatography of mass spectrometry. <laughs> so you basically it's a dialysis approach. So you take sort of uh, cerebrospinal fluid from the rat or the, of the, or the mouse, and then you do a separation technique, and then you basically just spend your, all of your analytes on a column and then use a method of detection to detect the peaks. And at, at, you know, as of today, there's only one lab in the world that can do that reliably from dialysis. So yes, we, somebody could do that, but we just, you know, there's only one lab in the world, so... It, it, it's not true. What lab is that? It's Larry Parsons at UCSD. Mm-hmm. Actually, at La Jolla, sorry. Yeah, at Scripps. 
So the idea is that these endocannabinoids have this ability to sculpt dopamine responses mm-hmm. across the board, and dopamine has to be on board in order for them to be able to do that. So what? But there are all the like you're doing all this work on using these these uh, exogenous um, or these exocannabinoids, I guess, to um, to try to treat symptoms of withdrawal and to, like. So what is the sort of principle? behind using these drugs for things like PTSD and I mean, I think we're, we're, there's a little bit of a confound. So we're using drugs that we can inject to raise tissue levels of endogenous cannabinoids. So in fact, you're using endocannabinoids. Very few um, trials are being conducted using phytocannabinoids, i.e. THC. Yes. But there are some of those too, and this, this the science behind those is just starting to to be investigated formally. So we really, in my lab specifically, we use pharmacological or genetic manipulations to really ascribe a role for endogenous signaling, principally. So we either block a receptor, right, to prevent endogenous signaling from having its effect, or we do the opposite manipulation, which is to use an indirect agonist, right? Like giving a drug that instead of binding to the cannabinoid receptor specifically, it raises levels of things that are going to bind to the receptor, things that are produced endogenously. So it's very different. Like an exogenous cannabinoid is something that comes from a plant or that's been synthesized in a lab. What we do in my lab is to really look at the fluctuating levels of endogenous cannabinoids. So one huge difference in those things is the the stuff you're studying, the endogenous ones, are conditional. They're happening at particular times. And whereas if you just give an exogenous cannabinoid, it's just going to go in an unconditional way. That was sort of what I was thinking about when we were talking about this before, because the, uh, it seems to me that putting on an exogenous cannabinoid uh, is going to defeat all the timing aspects of everything. It's going to destroy the natural physiological cycle of release and not release, and then also the conditional nature of it that might have to do with cues and that sort of thing. So are we thinking about... So, so I know that in the experiment, we do something like lower endocannabinoid levels, and we don't see the dopamine response anymore to the cue. And so you can think of the cannabinoid treatment as being constant baseline, steady state thing. But do you think that the cannabinoids are participating in the response to the cue in a time-linked way that's very close to the timing of the cue? Or do they act in a, in a sort of tonic baseline way to adjust things slowly over time? That's the $6 million question. I mean, unless I, unless I use... A method that will allow me to measure the release of these compounds in the temporal scales that we can measure dopamine we're not going to know, right? I mean, that's, but, you know, I'd like to think that because these things are generated um, on demand, that they're having an effect only when the dopamine neuron is being recruited for a task based upon its afferent input. Now, when you give an agonist, you're absolutely right. You lose that completely because you've pretty much saturated all the receptor reserve that's there. And so the effects are going to be probably in the same direction, but amplified. Again, this obviously may depend on the dose. But, you know, if, if, this, if the endogenous agonist 
and the exogenous agonists are somewhat equipotent, you should get a much larger response with the exogenous agonists because you basically, as, as I said, you're going to just um, saturate the receptor reserve. But the problem is, you know, for, for things like, um, you know, for example, for things like uh, epilepsy or, or uh, Parkinson's, you know, people have used marijuana and that seems to work under those conditions. And, you know, the physiological mechanisms be th- be behind that, we have no idea. We have is no a, idea. Is, so under normal conditions, then, so I, I always am wary of these comparisons of like what, what a system does when you have a disease versus what it actually does when you don't have a disease. Like I'm always wary of people saying what the basal ganglia does by studying Parkinson's disease, right, right, and by studying people with epilepsy, you give them endo- or some kind of cannabinoids, right. you fix it, and therefore we know how epilepsy works or something like that. Because the, the way I imagine is is um, endocannabinoids are working to put a break on a system that has already happened, right? So you have these inputs coming in, they're activating, they're overactivated onto a dopaminergic neuron, the dopaminergic neuron will then burst or, or fire faster. And it's only after this event has happened right. that then endocannabinoids are recruited, they're, they're made on demand, and therefore the system is shut down after this has already happened. But it's not like the cannabinoid system is, at least at that level, is, not, is, uh, is, is molding the inputs to dopamine neurons to change the way they affect dopamine neurons. It's just that if the inputs are too much, right? That's then exactly the, what it is, and the, the, the endogenous system kicks in to break them. That's the notion. So when, when we do it, when when we genetically manipulate animals or we wash on drugs and stuff like that, and then say, well, therefore, the endogenous system does this because now we can get rid of the entire cue response uh, of the inputs to dopamine neurons. Therefore, they modulate cue responses. Well, not really, because now you're washing in so much. Endogen, uh, so much cannabinoid that you artificially are stopping cue responses from taking place to begin with. Of course, you're artificially when, using it because yeah. you used a compound that interferes with the actual ability. Yeah. Short of you being able to measure the endocannabinoid, that's the that's the next best thing. Yeah, but so, but I just think we it's, we have to be careful about saying that. Therefore, the cannabinoid system modulates um, inputs dopaminergic neurons to change the way dopaminergic neurons respond to these to these inputs. Rather than saying they're something that prevents excitatory inputs from driving dominoes too much. Right, but what is the functional consequence? You can't just say that in a vacuum. I mean, dopamine neurons are firing for a reason. Yeah, they're firing for a reason, but the the endogenous cannabinoids are only acting on that event. Right, but they're having a a, a consequence. They have a consequence, but when the cue response has already happened. Right. The Q response happened, and but, then the cannabinoid comes. Exactly, in. but but you know the the dopaminergic neuron cannot elicit its pattern of activity without cannabinoid receptors. We've shown it. Cannot elicit its pattern of activity, so it can't. We can't get the same amount of dopamine that we get at the Q if we block cannabinoid receptors, right? Well, if if it's if it's just stop, if it's only stopping to prevent, if it's only stopping excitatory inputs to dopaminergic neurons, then based based on that knowledge, blocking endocannabinoids should give you... No, because remember, there's, as I said earlier, there's 
GABA and glutamate receptors that impinge upon dopamine neurons. And the amount of GABA receptors of CB1 receptors on GABA terminals is much greater than the amount of CB1 on glutamate receptors. So just from a probability standpoint and just from a cytoarchitectonic way, the arrangement of CB1 receptors and the enzymes, they're preferentially located on dendrites that have CB, uh, GABA-containing CB1 afferents to them. Ah, so It just occurs to me that this is... This is in favor of the view that the dopamine cells fire because of disinhibition. Yeah. And, and that, that burst is actually disinhibitory burst, which, I, yeah. which is an idea that's been around from time to time. For a little while. Right. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you find it sort of surprising in light of a paper that Garrett glad, Stuber published glad, a while ago? I'm glad Joe um, thought of that. That was um, looking at when he was, <laughs> when he was selectively um, activating the GABA neurons within the VTA. Mm-hmm. And in sort of a simple Pavlovian response, he was looking at sort of the condition cue response and sort of their behavior and as well as their sort of consumatory response. And when we activated the GABA neurons, there was no effect on the anticipatory, one could think the cue response, but he had a selective effect on the reward response. And I guess how potentially would you match your cannabinoid responses where you're having selective effects on the cue and behavior, but nothing necessarily on the consumatory. You sort of have this Interesting, almost complete opposite sort of finding right. what he has, but yet both are suggestive of having effects on like the, the As, GABA neurons. Absolutely. It's just, you know, as you know, there's different flavors of GABA neurons, right? So, and it turns out that the neurons that express CB1 receptor message uh, are principally located on the RMTG. And the cells that he looked at were the extrinsic projection neurons that the VTA has that have collaterals, and those have very little to no CB1 receptor message. That's cool. So, yeah, that was, and we actually did those experiments. We have that almost getting ready to be published to show that that's the case, which is surprising to me because, I mean, a GABA neuron in the VTA, for all practical purposes, as I was telling Denar today, is very similar to an RMTG GABA cell, but it turns out that it's not. And there's three or four, actually, close to five papers that show, you know, very clearly and independently that RMTG inhibitory drive to uh, dopamine neurons is clearly CB1 receptor dependent. All right. Thanks for being with us, Joe. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This was fun. Yes. It's been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Joe Thanks.